today on Ag News Daily. This Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, Ag News Daily Editions brought to you by Mystic Lubes. For a full look at their line of lubricants, visit mysticlubes.com, M-Y-S-T-I-K, lubes.com. Tanner and Delaney here to give you some headlines before a great interview. Delaney, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Tanner, Cassie and I have now officially met in person. You'll be hearing from her and I both later this week with some great conversations coming to you from Kansas City. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed out, but I didn't get invited. Oh, well, darn it. I must have gotten <laughs> lost like, in the mail. Uh huh. I feel like that was intentional. Never, never. Uh, you're right. I find that hard to believe. But listeners... Our conversation today after the news is focused around weather, so I'm not going to hit too much on these headlines, but we do have some positive news, Delaney. It looks like this cold weather that we're experiencing, this Arctic blast, will subside before Thanksgiving, so next week is supposed to be more mild. We are still getting snow flurries here in central Iowa today, and we also know that parts of Wisconsin and Michigan are expected to continue to get some of this snow. The further north you go, northern Indiana, you could potentially see up to 10 inches of snow. So it'll be interesting to catch up with our Mm -hmm. guests today about more of these weather-related headlines. Yeah, I don't think 10 inches of snow I'm prepared for yet, Tanner. We walked to dinner last night, and it was just maybe two blocks from the hotel. It was quite brisk, so... Definitely not ready for the winter weather and glad to hear we're going to get a little bit of a reprieve here, but we'll talk more weather here coming up in just a while with Eric Snodgrass. Tanner, we've got big news, big headlines yesterday that happened after we recorded the podcast, and that has been a missile strike that was destined for Ukraine and ended up hitting Poland instead, two of which so far we've seen confirmed folks that have passed away from this missile strike. And the Polish prime minister called for an urgent committee meeting on uh, Tuesday with his national security and defense affairs folks. But they're very upset by this, Tanner. Of course, as I mentioned there, it was aimed to head to Ukraine. Specifically, they think for some energy facilities in Ukraine. But this certainly had the markets rallied yesterday afternoon, Tanner. Uh, They rallied into the close on the reports and unsurprisingly took back those gains in the overnight here, This uh, heading into the opening session here today. Yeah, it's interesting because those headlines are mixed because now there's there's news coming out that the missiles were Russian, but more than likely fired from the Ukrainian defense after they had taken over uh, parts of the Russian-occupied Ukraine to hopefully misdirect additional attacks. But all in all, it could bring interesting involvement from NATO as Poland is to remain out of this as part of those initial treaties and agreements. But it is, you know, more details are going to come as we sort through the weeds as to where those missiles actually came from 
who fired them and what their direct intentions were for. Yes. Yeah, so I, it sounds like there's not a lot of clarity. I had not heard that piece of news that it could actually have been coming from Ukraine, Tanner. Yeah. It, it, and that's the other side of it. It We just don't know. It doesn't seem like it's very clear. The only thing that, that seems to be confirmed is they, they were Russian missiles. So um, yes, all things would point to that article that I read that Poland, I think, what did you say, prime minister, since mm-hmm. I'm not looking right at the article, stated that Russia was still at fault, no matter the destination in which they arrived or originated from. So um, quite interesting there. But as we keep Russia in the headlines, India is under scrutiny from the U.S. and other of the G7 committee. They are stated that India can buy as much Russian oil as it wants. They don't have to worry about the cap on the price of oil. The only caveat coming from G7 is that they can't use Western services. So they can't use the insurance services, the finance arms, or maritime services. So what that means, Delaney, is they can buy the Russian oil, but they can't use U.S. Treasury. They can't use uh, Western finance to convey the transaction from point A to point B. They can't use shipping insurance. They can't use actual Western ships and cargo delivery systems. They can buy as much oil as they want, but our uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that it becomes more difficult when they can't use Western currency, especially Western insurance to ensure their voyage or maritime vessels that are a part of the Western G7 side of this as well. So obviously Russia is trying to sell crude as a way to fund their war. They have now taken over Saudi Arabia and Iraq to become India's top oil supplier. So I don't see those transactions slowing down as far as demand for oil for India, but it'll be interesting to see how they get it delivered and what types of services they end up using with the G7 and Western services being off limits. I wonder why they are clamping down on that. Does the article allude to any reasoning? Uh the sanctions on Russian goods. So that oh, that's yes. more what it's tied to. But but India doesn't have sanctions on Russians' goods, do they, Tanner? No, it's just more sanctions on Russia for them to be able to sell. Uh, trying to, it looks like, according to the rest of that article, just that trying to snuff out the funding for the war. Got it. Well, let's keep with the international headlines here this morning, Tanner. As we finish up some of the meetings at the G20 summit, President Xi Jinping continues his meeting with Western leaders following his talks with President Biden. But after a long stretch of isolation, we're starting to see political unrest, Tanner, in China. Specifically, we're seeing videos start to surface of crowds of residents overrunning COVID lockdown barriers and checkpoints in China due to... The fact that they've been largely on lockdown and been on quarantine uh, at their houses for largely the last two plus years, and it seems that the people now are uh, starting to fight back. So it could be an interesting process forward as we see how China's government responds to this, Tanner. Yeah, it will be quite interesting to see uh, what the retaliation there as well. Uh, I hadn't seen this as news that I was going to share, but it looks like out of Business Insider yesterday around the evening mealtime Central Standard Time that Republicans had flipped the five seats needed to gain control of the House of Representatives. 
it looks like uh, the results are in, took longer than expected, but the red wave had failed. However, uh, looks like the House has regained control. But I wanted to head back to stateside with that headline as I was getting to my article next of a break-in at an Ohio farm. So have you seen that headline yet, Delaney, about a break-in in Ohio? No. What type of livestock do you think was released during the break-in? Oh, gosh. I don't know, cattle or hogs, but that seems too obvious for why you're asking me. Thousands of mink were released mink? from their cages oh. at a Northwest Iowa farm overnight. The property owner originally stated that more than 25 to 30,000 mink were released from their cages and state that 10,000, a little over 10,000 are still at large. This farm's less than 15 miles away from the Indiana state line. The incidents considered breaking and entering with a crime of vandalism remains under investigation for those who were the culprits. Mink are not dangerous, Delaney, to humans. They are carnivorous, though, so farmers and community members within the area area are being put under alert if they have any backyard livestock like chickens or rabbits or any small animals since mink will feed off of fresh kills and are carnivorous. They mainly stay to to smaller animals uh, than their size, but... It is certainly nonetheless a headline that I thought was worth mentioning. That is certainly bizarre, but interesting. Absolutely. Let's pause here real quick for a message from our sponsor before we get into our next news story. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K-lubes.com. Well, Tanner, as we dive into our next piece of news here, the world's population has officially hit 8 billion people as of yesterday, November 16th. That's according to the United Nations World Population Models. And it has been just 12 years since we passed the 7 billion people mark, now sitting at 8 billion and less than a century after the planet says we are going to increase or less than a century left until we increase another 2 billion people, Tanner. Wow. That's uh, for certainly a milestone and uh, continuing to see how farmers can feed this growing population will be an interesting journey to be a part of. And we have some news coming out of the USDA from yesterday that we have funding that might help some young farmers that are interested in feeding the world get started. If you're not sure where to start, check out the USDA's new Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program, the BFRDP, for an acronym. The National Institute of Food and Ag has issued the fact that they will disperse funds across 45 different organizations and institutions to help ag and food flourish from the ground up, said their chief scientist, the USDA undersecretary, stated that the BFRDP, I think they could have come up with a better acronym there, Delaney. Yeah, the agree. BFRDP's mission is 
to implement activities that manage capital, acquire and manage land, learn effective business and farming practices. So a couple of the groups, Delaney, that got funds were the Mountain States Group in Boise, Idaho. They received $500,000 to provide land, water and infrastructure training to refugee farmers. Entrepreneurial Small Farmers of Southern Illinois received a little over 250000 to help beginning farmers from underrepresented or low-income communities begin to gain their experience, less than 10 years of experience required for that application. North Carolina Ag and Tech University received just shy of three quarters of a million dollars for marketing, finance, and climate smart skills courses and productions. This is just a couple of items coming out of the $2.2 billion investment that will continue to help boost young and inexperienced individuals into learning about the agricultural community. I think there should be one, Delaney, that uh, either gives podcast hosts or bankers a leg up Mm -hmm. in getting into agriculture. We could both benefit from something like that. That's true. They should. I actually wouldn't be surprised. The banking maybe makes more sense than the podcasting, but I'm surprised they don't have anything like that currently. But Tanner, while we're on the topic of payments and large money pots available, for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure I fully understand the mentality behind this yet, but I'm not sure I often do when Washington is involved. But for those producers who missed the last couple of disaster aid packages or pandemic packages, the USDA is putting forward more money to help with the past two years. And producers will get another opportunity here to file losses or claims with the USDA. We haven't gotten official word, official word yet, but they've really strongly teased Tanner that producers should start getting their tax or financial records ready if they feel they've been left out of the early pots of money for disaster aid from 2020 or 2021 or suffered losses during the pandemic but did not receive compensation under earlier programs. So the USDA on Tuesday, Tanner, teased some details for the next phase of their Emergency Relief Program, or ERP-2, as well as the newly created Pandemic Assistance Revenue Program, or PARP. How's that one for an acronym for you? Well, PARP's a lot better than B-R-F-D-P-F-R-E. I don't remember what it was now. Yes. I don't either, but nonetheless here, like I said, don't have full details yet. It's really just been teased up until this point. Um, But I'm sure, Tanner, as we talk to Secretary Vilsack later this week virtually in Kansas City, that is going to be a question that farm broadcasters ask him. Absolutely. Let's pause here real quick one more time for a message from our sponsor today before we get into the markets. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Well, Tanner, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, we certainly saw yesterday markets rally on that news of the missile crisis or missile strike, I should say, in Poland. 
Uh, but that positive momentum did not continue into the overnights as we saw new crop December corn give up seven cents in the overnights. We'll open this morning at 6.59 and three quarters. January soybeans will open 15 and a quarter cent lower at 14.42. Even wheat could not hold through and has given up now most of the early gains we saw earlier this week. December Chicago contract down 22 cents in the overnight will open at 8.06. December hard wheat will open at 9.46 and a half. And livestock markets yesterday finished fairly mixed. December live cattle contract will open this morning at a buck 51.27. No, uh, January feeders will open this morning at a buck seventy-seven oh two, and December lean hogs finished forty-five cents higher on the day yesterday to open this morning at eighty-five thirty-two and a half. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Eric Snodgrass. Eric, certainly super excited to talk to you today. And folks, if you're not familiar with Eric Snodgrass, he is the Science Fellow for Nutrient Ag Solutions and a longtime friend of the podcast. You're kind of our uh, go-to weather guy, Eric, whenever we want to talk weather on the podcast. So we certainly appreciate you hopping on with us again today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. So Eric, I feel like a good place to start here would be this recent influx of Arctic temperatures that we've seen, especially here across the Midwest. Can we continue to expect these temperatures or was it's just so weird because last week it seems like we were in the 60s and then this week we're in the 30s and it's a little bit of a shock to my system. Yeah, it's been a problem for growers as well, because before that, like you said, it was very warm and also across parts of much of the Midwest and Plains, it was very dry. So there was the issue there with like fall field work. It was good for harvest, but could we get in some of those fall applications with the soil being as dry as it was? And then we also had the issues that that dryer uh, really caused, you know, from September into October, beginning of November uh, on the Mississippi River, which is still very low uh, and making a very slow recovery. So then uh, we switched. There was a large ridge that built into Alaska, another one over Scandinavia, and that pinches a lot of cold air down to North America. And we're still yet to see the depth of this cold. It's going to be racing through the country here at the end of this week. And where I am in Great Falls, I'm going to wake up to a uh, temperature tomorrow morning about minus three so I'm not looking forward to that. But the good news is, is that the pattern's opening back up again. We're seeing the Pacific jet kind of knock that big blocking ridge out of Alaska, going to bring the pattern back more active into the Northwest and bring systems across the U.S., including one that might emerge in the Southern Plains around Thanksgiving. So, yeah, we're drier and colder for the next five to seven days. But thankfully, it's not a permanent installation of cold air that's going to last for months on end. So that kind of leads into probably the next logical question is where, you know, long-term forecasts can be those that uh, are up for a lot of discussion, but what do you see the winter season looking like? And may we dare even ask about the beginning of next year's growing season? Yeah. So when we do long range seasonal forecasting, we, we really have very few tools at our disposal. In other words, we, we try to look at analogs. We try to look at ocean temperature patterns and also at soil moisture. That's really the, the main clues we've got. So here's the thing. There's a La Nina right now, but that La Nina, which is probably going to dominate early winter, which is delivering a lot of moisture to the northwest United States, colder temperatures at times across the northern tier of the United States, and then the risk of drier conditions from California all the way over to the southeast. And by the way, California today is having very strong 70-mile-an-hour Santa Ana winds down in Southern California. So they got humidity levels in the single digits down there with those winds. 
really rough go of it. Well, anyway, that La Nina, I think it does have an expiration date. I think that it will not complete this third year that it just started. And my, my estimate right now is that once we get past about mid-December uh, through mid-January, we'll start to see the La Nina breaking up, meaning it will no longer be our most dominant teleconnection. Now, the good news is, is when you lose a La Nina like this, it tends to help the atmosphere resist a bit more winter blocking. And what that means is we tend to return better precipitation across a lot of the country through winter. And if that La Nina really gets out of here by the time we start talking about spring and summer, which is what the current thinking is, that actually opens up the United States for better flow overall from the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't mean we won't have regional drought coming back on, but it won't be like we've got now where over 80% of the country is in some form of drought. So at this stage, I think we're going to see drought probably be reduced across the United States by at least 25% going into spring. And I also think that this could lead, this transition out of La Nina could lead uh, into an overall more positive look for the 2023 growing season for not just you know the Midwest and the Corn Belt and Soybean Belt, but maybe more of the country as well. We like La Ninas to fade. El Ninas are a much better scenario for us. So Eric, with the potential in the fading La Nina, what are some signs that we can look at to see or from just a non, you know, weather person, obviously you look at the weather models daily, so you have a different handle on it. But from our perspective as producers, is it just more snowfall coverage or what are some visible indicators that we can see that may indicate that the La Nina pattern is fading? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll tell you two things. When you start to see more of the storm systems that come across the United States, so those winter storms, we get them, you know, no matter what, right? But if you see their trajectory coming more from the southwest to the northeast versus the northwest to the southeast. So I kind of crisscrossed the country there, right? La Nina's tend to deliver more storm systems that like to come out of the northwest to the southeast. El Nino's, or when we lose La Nina, even if we just lose La Nina, they tend to come more out of Colorado, or out of the Texas, Oklahoma panhandle area, or even out of the Gulf Coast. And that just shows you that the atmosphere is more capable of delivering systems that can tap into more moisture. And that's why they tend to do better. There's, the second thing is this. You know, we often use the ocean temperatures in the Pacific as our indicator of whether we're having a La Nina or an El Nino. But remember, the ocean temperatures are the symptom. They just show you what the atmosphere is doing. And so what, what happens here is that as soon as those trade winds let go, which are a, a characteristic of a strong La Nina, then uh, the ocean temperatures will slowly start to respond. So we'll watch for those trends. We'll keep an eye on those trade winds, and we'll watch for the trajectory of systems rolling across the United States. So before we jump away from U.S. weather and into uh, South American and European weather, let's talk about the potential for additional hurricanes yet this year. Are we out of hurricane season or is there still you know, a chance? <laughs> Excuse me. I, you know, I'm an atmospheric scientist, so there's always still a chance, right? But, uh, you know, I, I tell you this about the hurricane season. The coal was a very late system. Uh, it had some benefits, to be honest with you, because as it rolled up the East Coast, you know, it didn't produce a lot of damage other than where it kind of came into Florida. But as it rolled up the East Coast, it really wiped out a lot of recent regional drought development there. Uh, will Nicole likely be the last name system? I think that it will. It'll certainly, I'd say that the odds of another system impacting the United States are very limited at this point. We tend to think of the hurricane season ending on December 1st, 
but it's very rare to produce November systems. That's a, that's a pretty rare thing. So I think we're about out of it. And by the way, since we talked about El Nino a few moments ago, remember that El Nino uh, summers and falls tend to produce higher wind shear over the Atlantic, which means we could be looking at a reduced risk of hurricanes next year because of El Nino possibly returning. So Eric, as we shift our attention here to international weather events, there's obviously quite a few I feel like we should touch on today, but I want to start first as we're heading into the winter season here in the U.S. We're also heading into the winter season or the cooler season, I should say, really in Europe. And we continue to watch headlines of missile strikes and trade implications uh, between Russia and the EU. How bad do you think their winter is going to get this season and how much is that going to exacerbate the energy crisis? So I think the thing we have to just be on the lookout for here is that if there is a well-timed Arctic outbreak that hits the eastern side of the United States and Europe at the same time, that could send a pretty big demand shock through the um, you know, through the energy sector. And that's something we, you know, we of course want to avoid, but we need to be very prepared for because sometimes when you transition out of a La Nina, uh, what tends to happen is the North Atlantic can sometimes become blocked into huge ridges over Greenland and Iceland. So if there's a ridge there, it's not over the East coast of the U.S. and it's not over Europe. So that's how you can get that kind of double whammy effect of those two major population areas having really, really cold conditions. So there is risk this winter uh, of having multiple chances of that. Plus, if you disturb the polar vortex, not you, but if the polar vortex is disturbed, <laughs> there you go, we could uh, also have time periods where you pull into five to 10 days of, of brutally cold air, Arctic air that sits over Europe. So I, I'm going to be watching Europe like a hawk for these events because of what they could do, even though the Arctic outbreaks mainly last five, seven, eight days it could be enough to really just send a, a major demand shock through the uh, energy sector. Yeah, that is something that we're going to want to pay attention to. I know that we've reported a little bit too on headlines in South America, whether it's rainfall for growing seasons or, or rain to just get seeds germinated. So how are our South American friends faring this growing season weather-wise? Well, we know that Mato Grosso had a very fast plant for soybeans. And we also know that much of Brazil... Uh, went for more soybean acres with less of a share of the first crop going into corn. That's going to make the safrina crop on corn much bigger. There were a few places in southern Brazil that were dry. And then, of course, there's this kind of longstanding drought in Argentina. Now, over the last uh, about five to six days, there were better rains that hit almost every location in Argentina that needed a good drink. It brought up some of the soil moisture values. They got about an inch. That was kind of a widespread value I saw down there. But the problem is, is that the groundwater supply beneath that, you know, that root zone is still very dry, which means, you know, you got to have more than just one event to kind of revive a crop. So I'm still concerned about Argentina drought going forward. It's already hurt the winter wheat crop there. And uh, there's the potential that it's just slowing down the planting progress of corn and soybeans. But they have a very long window over which they can plant in Argentina, unlike, you know, in the Midwest, where we're just gung-ho, let's get it done as fast as we can in April and early May. They can open things up to sometimes up to a three to four month window to get a crop in. So much longer growing season. So I think the risks in South America are now in Argentina, and they could possibly be later this year. I'm talking like end of January, February, March, 
for the safrina crop may finish or may go in under drier conditions if the La Nina lets go. Eric, fantastic conversation as always. If any of our listeners would like to check out some of your stuff outside of just the podcast, how can they find you? You know, maybe an easy way. Uh, we do put a lot of our forecast videos on YouTube. So if you just go to YouTube and look up Nutrient Ag Solutions, you'll find us. And also I have a daily newsletter that uh, I can get folks hooked up with as well. If they just email me, uh, my name is Eric dot snodgrass or my email excuse me is eric e-r-i-c dot snodgrass s-n-o-d-g-r-a-s-s at nutrient.com and we can get them hooked up with our, our daily content fantastic eric well always a pleasure thank you so much for hopping on with us today certainly appreciate it yeah you bet Well, Delaney, it is always a pleasure to have guests like him on, so well-spoken and very knowledgeable in their field. He probably is one we should have on more often. I agree. Probably, yeah, at least once a quarter as things start to change. That's right. Well, I, uh, I'm not going to say that I'm jealous that I'm not down there with you and Cassidy, but uh, I know that the two of you are going to enjoy today and have a lot of really fun conversations to share with our listeners later on this week. So that's the teaser, listeners. Stick around as we get some valuable information coming out of Kansas City. Absolutely. And I might even tease all of the great Kansas City barbecue meals that I've been having so far this week, Tanner, but don't <laughs> want to make you too jealous. Uh, that might have just done it. Well, what do you say, Tanner? We let the people go for today. Let's let them go.